On 89.9 The Light, you're in conversation with Clayton and it is wonderful to have a chat to this gentleman. Once again, uh, he has put out uh, another great book. Greg, Greg Sheridan is our guest and the book that he's just recently uh, put out is Christians, The Urgent Case for Jesus in Our World. Uh, last time we spoke to him about God is good for you. Greg, it's great to have a chat to you again. Clayton, wonderful to be talking to you. Um, you've written uh, now a second book, and, and many of many of our listeners may understand that uh, you've actually been a journalist for decades, in fact. And so, uh, you know, articles and those sorts of focus has been a bit more of your game. But uh, it looks like you're, you're starting to enjoy this uh, writing of books, Greg. Clayton, this is actually my eighth book. It's my second book on Christianity. So my day job is um, being foreign editor of The Australian and... Um, you know, mostly I'm concerned with the Chinese Communist Party and the American military budget and, you know, uh, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations and what have you. But um, uh, two books ago, I wrote a memoir in which I sort of disclosed a little bit um, uh, Christian belief and experience and so forth. And then uh, three years ago, I wrote God is Good for You, which is essentially an argument about the sensible nature of believing in God. And this book, Christian Christians is really about the the sensible nature of believing in Jesus. Um, so it's uh, it's my second book on Christianity, but I'm a long term book writing yes. addict, and I advise young people to watch out. It's like becoming a heroin addict. <laughs> well, we love that uh, you've turned to uh, this idea of writing around faith and belief as well. It's it's wonderful. I, I do want to touch on that sort of personal aspect of it too, Greg, because, you know, one of the jobs, I suppose, as a journalist for all those years and, and you know, continuing uh, to the, this day as well is to sort of depersonalise yourself from the, the articles and the stories and the people you're writing about. Um, but you actually uh, very much, you know, in, in the opening of this book, talk about the fact that there was a personal understanding that actually your faith is a part of who you were and and you almost sort of imply a little bit of regret of not sharing some of your faith with some of the world leaders that you've had uh, time to chat through. Uh, Take me through that sort of idea of uh, saying, okay, I'm going to be all right about the fact that it's going to be a bit more personal for me after sort of training yourself out of it for so long. Well, um, it is a bit of a trend in modern journalism to be a bit more personal anyway. and uh, I've been a journalist now for 43 years, I think. I've been at the Australian newspaper for 30, 37 years or something like that. And um, But um, when, I, when I began in journalism, the culture was more or less pro-Christian, even if only in a very nominal way. And then it, I think over the decades it became neutral, and now I think it's kind of quite anti-Christian, although Christians were certainly not persecuted, but the culture is unsympathetic. And I kind of made a, a, a bit of an agonizing decision to come out a bit more publicly and own my faith publicly. So I've always been a believing Christian. I've had terrible trouble living up to the most modest um, you know, demands of Christianity about how you should live. But I've never had any real trouble about belief. Um, and then, of course, several things impelled me. One was that, um, so I thought it was a bit cowardly not to, not to own up to the belief. Secondly, I thought the culture was becoming uh, sort of needlessly hostile to Christianity based on a complete misunderstanding of what Christianity was. And then thirdly, a lot of journalistic instincts kicked in. I mean, this is a fantastic story. Uh, 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 The life of journalism, which is a wonderful life, is a life devoted to 
uh, getting out great stories and pursuing the truth and trying to produce scoops. Well, the, the culture is so thoroughly forgotten about Christianity that it's almost a scoop to remind it of um, of what Christianity is. And then the the Christian story is so compelling and just operating as a journalist, just uh, reading all the material journalistically, um, the evidence is so strong. So in the last book, God is Good For You, I argued that it's absolutely rational and sensible to believe in God, although I don't believe that you can prove God by reason, nor can you disprove God. But the overwhelming sort of sympathy of our reason goes with the with with the idea of God. And in this book, I um, disclose really the same for the New Testament, that there is nothing in history or reason which invalidates the New Testament. But as to the personal side of it, I think... People expect you now to be honest about yourself anyway. And also you get to a certain time and stage in your life and you think, well, this is this is who I am. This is what I believe. If I really believe it, I may as well say it. And um, uh, it's uh, it's probably a more effective way to communicate it than trying to, um, trying to be a desiccated uh, scholar. Journalism is very personal anyway. I, I think the Bible is full of good journalism because it always names the names. It always personalizes the story. It always gets the facts right. Uh, with, with the last book, I spent a lot of time in the Old Testament and was just thrilled at how good the journalism and the sub-editing was. And reading the New Testament as a journalist um, it, it all, also has its utility. You know, you can see the, the, the methods of writing and so forth. Luke at the start of his gospel discloses his journalistic methods, he's interviewed everybody, he's consulted all the previous written records and so on, and then he writes a great, great long-form journalism um, account of, uh, of Jesus and Mary and the early Christians. So I think it all um, it all came together. And in the end, the biggest hesitation you have about talking about yourself as a Christian is that your own life is absolutely unworthy of Christianity, and you don't want Christianity to be judged by your own life, or certainly I don't want Christianity judged by my life. But on the other hand, if you completely absent yourself from the discussion on that basis, that's really kind of cowardice. And if you leave it entirely to the morally qualified, it's a pretty small discussion. Yeah, exactly right. A, a couple of things I just want to uh, draw out a bit more as you talked through there too, Greg, is you, you talked about that you think there's sort of a, a cultural misunderstanding of, of Christianity and you sort of... Um, alluded to the fact that um, you know, sort of, it's been um, maybe taken the wrong way or whatever else it is, and, and you can just sort of reveal the real Jesus, and that's that's going to be quite remarkable. Is there a definition that you've put around what that misunderstanding is? Well, first of all, Christianity has been kind of whited out of the culture. So, uh, so with the last book, God is good for you. There was a tremendous amount of publicity amongst the new atheists for the proposition that God had been disproved by science or science had turned against God. When you looked into it, you found that the arguments of the new atheists were completely flimsy. They were the old-fashioned flimsy arguments. People had not only forgotten about Christianity, they'd forgotten about the old 19th century arguments against the belief in God. And the new atheists put those arguments and then they put them next to a whole lot of irrelevant science, which didn't bear on whether God was there or, or, or not. Or I think... 
it reinforced the proposition of God, the fact that God might have taken 14 billion years to create this beautiful garden for us. That strikes me as very characteristic of God. Um, and then with the New Testament, there is a, a widespread view in our culture that there's something dodgy about the New Testament, that the Gospels were made up hundreds of years later. Uh, so a movie like The Da Vinci Code um, you know, puts out the proposition that this is all a, a myth made up by clever church um, leaders hundreds of years later to justify their their power structures and so on. And this is absolutely wrong. Uh, uh, the evidence for the New Testament and the evidence that the New Testament was written very close to the events that it describes is now overwhelming. Every new archaeological discovery and, and uh, every new historical advance validates the historical reliability of the New Testament. Now, that doesn't prove that Jesus rose from the dead and that he is the Son of God, but it certainly proves that Jesus was alive at the time we thought he was alive, that he was crucified, that he died, and that his followers almost immediately uh, came to the view that he was risen. And then when you actually read the New Testament, a lot of people are intimidated by reading about reading the Bible. They think it's too inaccessible, and parts of it are difficult. But I propose ways that people can start. Most of it is not difficult. Most of it is very, very accessible. And I was struck by the power and urgency and stark and uh, immediate nature of the um, account of the crucifixion and Jesus' agony. And uh, I mean, that's another argument for its authenticity because you just couldn't, uh, you couldn't make it up. I also argue in the book that it is actually the crucifixion even more than the resurrection, which is the most radical claim of Christianity. I mean, a lot of um, religious traditions have the idea of God walking on the earth at some stage, although this is typically in a prehistoric mythical time, not in a time not of, of history which can be falsified. And any religious tradition that believes in God believes that God could conquer death. But no religious sensibility uh, in the history of the human race has ever come up with a proposition of the all-powerful, eternal, all-knowing God being humiliated, tortured, and suffering physical death and defeat uh, on earth. And really, the most radical part of the Christian story is actually, I think, the crucifixion, and when you read it in the New Testament, in the four gospel accounts, its its power and immediacy is kind of overwhelming. And so I was struck, just journalistically, gosh, this is this is a great story. I mean, it's true, and therefore it revolutionises the human condition. But apart from that, it's a fantastic story. I mean, how can it be that we we don't let our kids, you know, we we sort of we've expunged this from all education curriculums and so on. No one gets to it except by by accident, uh, and yet it's the most important um, material that's ever been presented to the human race. Yeah. I, I love the way that you're reading it, Greg, through that journalistic, um, as well as that sort of personal mix together. As you said, that journey that you've been on is sort of feeling like as you're reading it, you know, you're reading the people, you're reading the stories rather than reading it as theology. Um, and yet that can, of course, impact our theology and all those sorts of things. It's certainly something that I know I've been trying to do of recent times as well is uh, truly read it and go, oh my goodness, just like you said, that would have been horrifying rather than just sort of read them as 
as stories from the past. It, it does change us as we uh, allow ourselves to, to truly read it and, and understand and try and put ourselves in those moments, doesn't it? It really does. And I don't think the, the Gospels and the writings of Paul and the letters of John and so on are, are read nearly enough. So, and I'm not remotely, not in any way critical of any Christian here, but most Christians come upon elements of the Bible as readings for meditation. And that is a perfectly good, that's absolutely sound. And then there'll be a sort of a theological explanation. So they'll read a verse or a couple of verses or a chapter or something at a time. That's absolutely great. I'm not remotely critical of that. And then the opponents of Christianity will just take out passages out of context and fling those around. And then the vast majority of people don't read it at all. But it's it's not read really in the way that it's meant to be read very often, which is, you know, the longest letter of St. Paul is only 10 pages long or something. I, I'm not saying you, you're exhausted or you understand everything with one reading, but if you haven't read it from start to finish, read that letter from start to finish. Uh, the Gospels, even the longest one, would, would only take you um, an hour or two to read. So read it in one or two sittings, just as though you were reading a novel. And, uh, you know, you might be bowled over and stopped and you have to have to stop and collect yourself for a minute. But um, so that doesn't, I'm not saying don't, you know, take a particular verse and meditate on it. But, but if you read it that way, it's kind of, it's narrative power and it's human power as well as it's divine power. Um, uh, you know, it comes across to you very strongly. My guest is Greg Sheridan. He's the author of this new book, Christians, The Urgent Case for Jesus in Our World. We're going to be back with Greg in a couple of minutes' time talking about the um, differences that, as he approached this, to talk about and discuss Christianity versus Jesus. And is that an important distinction that we should be noting as we go forward? Uh, and also this sort of taking up the, the mantle that, that he was talking about of Luke in the Bible who says, look, I've gone and I've talked to other people and here's their stories. And, and he's certainly done that as well with uh, various leaders and their uh, beliefs systems, including our own Prime Minister. We'll be back talking to Greg next here on 89.9 The Light. In conversation with Clayton. On 89.9 The Light, you're in conversation with Clayton, the author of the new book, Christians, The Urgent Case for Jesus in Our World. Greg Sheridan is my guest. Uh, and you might know Greg's name from, well, as, as he mentioned, over four decades in journalism, uh, over three decades of that with The Australian, and uh, has written a, a number of books, including the last couple, around uh, faith and his Christian faith. I wanted to just sort of talk to you as well, before we talk about a few of the people that you interviewed in this book, uh, Greg, around this idea of uh, talking through, and you know, you mentioned here, Christians, the urgent case for Jesus in our world, that the difference between, I suppose, uh, talking to this world about Christianity versus Jesus, and, and you know, is that something we should be trying to merge together more or perhaps separate more? Well, now I think the, the whole of Christianity is centred on the person of Jesus. And um, so uh, I think... You know, to talk about Jesus is to talk about Christianity. We live in very personalized times in the media. People don't like abstract nouns. They don't like to hear about anything that is, an, an, you know, a Christianity or an, an, an ism or an iti or something. You know, they, they like, they relate to the stories of people. I remember as a young bloke once thinking, 
been tremendously moved by the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Um, I wasn't old enough to really register it when it happened, but accounts of it later because I was very politically conscious young fellow. And um, I remember thinking to myself at the time, uh, the the death of Jesus doesn't seem so immediate to me. And I was only a young bloke then. I was maybe 12 or 14 or something like that. And even then, recognising it as a sort of um, anomaly, a bit of an oddness in, in the circumstance, but not really dwelling on it very much. Um, the, the divine claims of Christianity, as it were, the personal claims of Jesus as the Son of God and the, uh, you know, the Lord of our lives and so on, they precede the ethical claims of Christianity. It, it's from them. Because Jesus is Lord, because Jesus is God, the things that he tells us are tremendously important. It's not that because he tells us good things, we then deduce the fact that he may be God. Uh, so I think it makes sense to focus on the personality of Jesus. And then Jesus will never lead you astray. If you actually listen to what he has to say about everything, um, you're going to get all the doctrine you need. And by all means, then, you know, the different faith traditions help people interpret, you know, parts of the scripture can be challenging. I, I've one formulation which appeals to me a lot is that most of the big beliefs in Christianity are very simple, but they are also accompanied by a great mystery. And so you take salvation. We understand that Jesus uh, became man, suffered, died, was buried, and rose from the dead to redeem us. He did that for the love of us, to make us right with God uh, as a as a an act of salvation for us. But exactly what does this um, act involve in terms of the, what you might call the divine economy of the Blessed Trinity? You know, was he, was he exactly substituting his suffering for our sins? Uh, how, what is the mechanism here? I'm very much guided by C.S. Lewis, which, who says, there are a lot of theories about this, but we can't know it absolutely for sure because it's not absolutely explicit in the Bible. So I examine what you know evangelicals say about it, what Anglicans say about it, what Catholics say about it, and and then I I don't really offer a view because uh, this is a book written trying to trying to be written for all Christians about the Christian sort of consensus, if you like, and for all open-minded people who might like to know about that. But that's a very typical circumstance. The, the core of the doctrine is very simple, and yet it's also beyond our understanding in all of its ramifications. So it's both simple and a mystery. And the personality of Jesus is like that. He's yeah. both simple, straightforward, loving, generous, good, but at the same time, his divine status is, um, is, involves a lot of mystery. Absolutely. Um, Greg, part of what obviously you are incredibly skilled at and have been for, for many, many years is that journalistic take of speaking to leaders, of speaking to those and trying to understand what policy is and the reasons that things are happening and uh, the ramifications that that's happening for, for everybody. You've, you've taken an aspect of that as well as you've uh, then chatted to a number of people who are leaders in various parts of their world um, and said, hey, look, I know you have a faith. Let's talk about what it means and, and how it is. We're, perhaps we'll start with the Australian politicians that you spoke to. Of course, our Prime Minister is uh, the first Pentecostal, uh, you know, someone who attends a Pentecostal church to be the leader of 
our nation as well. Can you talk us through uh, the importance, I suppose, for you to include something like this and then what we should really take out of the learning of looking at their stories? Sure. So the, the, the book is in two halves, really, uh, Christians, The Urgent Case for Jesus in Our World. The first half is about Jesus and his first friends, the New Testament, its reliability, the search for Jesus, Mary, Paul, John. The second half is there's an essay on Christ in contemporary popular culture, but the second half is predominantly a series of interview profiles with Christians today. So they're like St. Paul in a way. They didn't. They weren't around when when Jesus was uh, was teaching in um, in Jerusalem and so on. So their relationship with Jesus is uh, is is not the same as that of the apostles. And uh, many of them are terrifically inspiring. You know, a number of them are people who are doing fabulous things because of the love of Christ. There's a number of church leaders there. But I did interview four Australian political or civic leaders, Scott Morrison, John Anderson, the former Deputy National uh, deputy Prime Minister, Bill Hayden, the former Labor leader and Foreign Minister, and General uh, Peter Cosgrove, the former Chief of the Defence Force. Scott Morrison is unusual because he's the first Pentecostal leader of an OECD nation. And I think Australians uh, are not as familiar with the Pentecostal tradition as they are with other Christian traditions. but both in this book and the last one, I try to demystify the Pentecostals a bit. I, I tremendously admire a lot of things about the Pentecostal tradition. I admire their openness, their candor, their good cheer, their fabulous um, music in the kind of rock and roll idiom, uh, and their um, their exuberance and enthusiasm. But it's a slightly distinctive style. So when Australians see the Prime Minister swaying with his hands raised in the air and uh, his eyes closed and so on in prayer at a Sunday service. That's a bit different from the from the Sunday services that they would typically see prime ministers at. And then the Pentecostals have a few practices which are distinctive. They emphasize the gifts of the Spirit, but all, all Christians believe in the gifts of the Spirit, of course. They emphasize faith healing. All Christians that I know pray for the sick and hope that God intervenes and, and makes them better. Um, I think the Prime Minister handles the public element of his Christianity very well. He doesn't uh, ram it down anybody's throat, but he doesn't run away from it, and he, he answers questions very directly. He doesn't. He's inspired by by Christianity, and Christianity is at the core of his life. But he doesn't think the Bible is a policy handbook. It gives you very powerful principles. You must treat people well and love them. And you mustn't persecute them. But on the other hand, it doesn't tell you whether you should deregulate the industrial relations system or what your fiscal policy should be or anything like that. And Australia really doesn't ever have politicians who claim that their policies are divinely uh, anointed. And Scott Morrison certainly doesn't claim that for, for his policies. But he, he rewarded me with a very frank and open, lengthy discussion about uh, his faith and everything that he believes. In conversation with Clayton. You extended that uh, and started looking at various other people who were influential in different ways, whether it be, um, you know, I think you, you mentioned, you know, the smartest person perhaps you've ever met over and happened to be a you know, business leader and, and leading various organisations in, in Asia to uh, someone who's, you know, influential in Hollywood. Could you tell us about uh, the way you chose these people and the, the influences, I suppose, you're hoping uh, us as a reader are taking away as we read each of their stories? 
Well, I suppose there was a kind of a grid of two factors. One, people, did, did I know them uh, in some manner so that I could approach them? And secondly, were they, were they tremendously interesting? So the two cases you mentioned, one was uh, George Yeo, the former Singapore foreign minister. George Yeo, I think, is the smartest man I ever met in Southeast Asian politics. A, a really brilliant, gifted guy, wonderful guy, uh, about my own age, very good to talk to. He's now in business, um, you know, as a director of, of a couple of big companies. But he is a um, lifelong Christian and, of course, ethnically Chinese and profound philosophical uh, and theological thinker. And I was really curious to ask him about what it's like being a Chinese Christian when the, the Christian canon seems to be full of Western faces and, uh, you know, there aren't many Chinese in the Vatican or anything like this. Oddly enough, I had a funny little personal role in his um, involvement. Uh, years ago, Cardinal George Pell rang me and said, look, I, I want to put an Asian on this finance reform commission for the Vatican. Is there someone you'd recommend? And uh, George Yeo had been also, I think, the finance minister of Singapore. So I recommended him and he took the job and he had a tremendous impact in trying to reform the Vatican's finances. He also went through very deep personal traumas with uh, the death of, of uh, a brother and um, his wife's uh, suffering early terrible cancer and then experiencing what seems to be a miraculous cure. And he was very, very thoughtful. So I thought this would be a really interesting insight. There are two chapters in the book about Chinese Christianity, which is just a, Chinese Christianity is so heroic and so magnificent and such an extraordinary uh, growth of Christianity in China in the most difficult circumstances. And the other case you mentioned, someone interesting in active in Hollywood, so Pastor Sammy Rodriguez was someone I hadn't met before, but he had read my previous book and um, had liked it, very kindly liked it and communicated to me that fact. So he is one of the highest profile Hispanic Pentecostal evangelical pastors in America, and he heads the National Hispanic uh, uh, Evangelical Association, which has 42,000 member churches. He's based in California, has a big church of his own. But one of the good things about the Pentecostals, and all the different Christian traditions offer different strengths, one of the good things about the Pentecostals is that they're very contemporary. So they don't have some of the great institutions like Anglicans or Catholics, the schools and universities and so on. But they're very smart at dealing with the contemporary world. Now, their work, they work very hard and quite successfully at outreach to young people. And he sees that young people are influenced by film, video content. So one thing he's done is make three successful Hollywood movies. One of them that I write about had a budget of $10 million, made revenues of $50 million, and I think was nominated... Uh, for various awards in the music category. So these are movies which have a strong Christian element. They typically have quite a Hispanic quotient and you can't really deal with Hispanic culture in America without dealing with its religious dimensions. So, so you know, Christianity gets a free pass in American culture in certain sections because you can't be mean to Hispanic Christians because... You know, it's just too big a cohort, you know, so even Hollywood can't kind of denounce them, you know. And um, and so he's making an effort to influence contemporary secular culture 
in the most contemporary secular way by making Hollywood movies, among other things. And so his ministry, his personality, tremendously interesting. Now, I wasn't able to travel to America or anything like that, so our conversations took place over Zoom. But he was wonderfully open and uh, uh, available to me and very generous with his time and also told me his own personal story. He didn't want to become a pastor. He thought he was going to be a computer engineer, but God just kept uh, kept knocking on the door and ultimately he um, he felt that he had to, to say yes. Love it. Wonderful. Um, Greg, as we, we finish up, I, I, I suppose I'm reflecting as you talk and, and thinking through, you know, the various aspects of the world that you have travelled in and, and asked questions in and, 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 you know, the passion that you spoke about as you talked about the, the church in China and, and the, the you know, heroicism that is being seen there. And we, we look at what is occurring perhaps through faith and politics mixing, especially in the States and how that perhaps is starting here in Australia as well. And it sort of seems like that's perhaps the, the point of what this book is about too is to don't let it just become this political thing but but look to, to Jesus. Do you think there is a, a danger that here in Australia we might end up politicising faith far too much even within, just even within the Christian realm? Look, that's a really profound question, Clayton. I would only offer very provisional thoughts. I don't think Christians are trying to politicise their faith at all in Australia. Uh, very different circumstance in America, but even there, I think it's happening more. It's something that's being done to Christians more than being done by Christians. But it's a complicated and different picture in America. In Australia, I don't think Christians are trying to politicise their faith at all. But in all Western societies, the uh, hostility to Christianity uh, at the institutional level is growing. And I think this is part of a profound cultural shift. Um, the commanding heights of the culture, especially in the academies and in, uh, in some parts of the media, are now so cut off from their Christian roots that the things that we used to regard as universal human truths, such as universal human dignity, which derive entirely from the outgrowth of Christian reasoning and Christian understanding. I mean, human dignity over the last 2,000 years has been acknowledged because of the sense that every human being has a divine relationship with God. And it's not self-evident to um, to everyone on the planet that every human being is like that. I, I, I'm going on too long, but to give you a digression, I had a bit of a debate on the Q&A program a year or two ago with the atheist philosopher Peter Singer. Very nice man, Peter Singer. Very, very good philosopher and very useful philosopher because he thinks issues through to their logical conclusion. Now, he argues in one of his books that uh, handicapped children who, whose parents don't want to look after them should simply be allowed to die and that they have less utility than sentient mammals, uh, dogs and cats and chimpanzees and so on. And I was uh, you know, criticising this proposition and disagreeing with him, and he said to me, you know, quite in a quite friendly way, he said, but Greg, do you really think they should be kept alive just because they're members of our species? And I said, yes, absolutely, because they are human beings. They have an inherent human dignity. Now, this is what Christianity, among many other things, has given to the culture. And when you completely wipe the culture off, for a long time, the culture can live on the sort of uh, capital of its Christian inheritance. But Ultimately, the Christian categories cease to be um, widely uh, understood and widely adopted. 
and the culture is becoming very hostile to Christianity. Therefore, Christians need to do things as a bold minority, both in order to proclaim the truth and in order to defend the truth. So if the society says, you may not teach traditional Christian teaching about marriage or you know, the rights of the unborn or whatever it is, because to do so constitutes discrimination against people who have other beliefs. Christian institutions then, they need to defend that. It's not a question of turning the other cheek then because they're not turning the other cheek to an insult to themselves. They're turning the other cheek to the defamation of the truth. And Christians always have a duty to proclaim the truth. So I think if, if the faith gets politicized in Australia, it's more likely to be something which will happen to Christianity than because of the actions of Christians. Having said that, Christians need to remember when they go into the political sphere, they need to be bold, they need to be forthright. We don't have a holiday from proclaiming the truth, but they also need to be kind and friendly. You know, they can't be as mean as their enemies. That's, that's, not, uh, that's not faithful to the gospel. Now, I certainly don't live up to these. You know, I'm giving you counsels of perfection <clears throat> and their counsels I often fall way, way, way short of myself. But that's part of the complexity and um, gravity of the challenge that Christians face in public culture today. Yeah, and I think there's a great challenge uh, for anybody who would consider themselves uh, a Christian to take both of those and put them together, Greg. I think that is the sense, isn't it? That there's there's an absolute... Um, a call to stand up for truth, but there's an absolute call to do that with that same dignity of other people, um, and not just absolutely. Say it's it's truth at all costs, and therefore uh, no one else matters. And I think that's where the the swing seems to be that it feels like it's at times one or the other rather than both. And I think that there would be a change uh, if uh, each of us, and I'm certainly with you, Greg. I, I do not live up to this uh, anywhere near as much as I would like to, but to can hold that together, there would be a much better understanding of who Jesus is and the way he could actually change our world and our communities. And, of course, the example always is Jesus. So, uh, you know, many occasions the authorities tried to get Jesus to say things that were not true. They tried to get him to condemn the woman caught in adultery to stoning. They tried to get him to uh, deny his own divine status and so on. And he was absolutely stubborn in refusing to do that. And very occasionally... He was angry, as in the, the, the turning over the, the tables of the money changers in the in the temple. But he never reacted with violence or or abuse. Uh, he told uh, the apostle to put his sword away, um, and uh, he always acted with kindness towards the people who were persecuting him, uh, even on the cross. Uh, you know, Father, forgive them now. None of us are going to live up to Jesus, but that's the that's the example that uh, that we have about. And uh, you know, I strongly feel the profound hypocrisy of myself saying this, but nonetheless, there it is. We're Christians, we're all hypocrites in a way because we're all aiming at a virtue that we can never quite attain. But we shouldn't lose sight of the virtue that we're aiming at. Yeah, absolutely, Greg. We wish you all the best with this book, Christians: The Urgent Case for Jesus in Our World. It's uh, been. Absolutely wonderful having a chat to you once again. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Thanks very much indeed, Clayton. A real joy to talk to you. Greg Sheridan, the author of Christians, The Urgent Case for Jesus in Our World, here on 89.9 The Line.